0: Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor at Large for Larb, and I'm joined remotely today by my co host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Kate. How are you?
1: Okay. I'm just handling this heat. Trying
2: to yeah.
0: get, trying
1: to get through it without an AC. Oh, right. I forgot about that. Yeah.
0: I also have my AC turned off right now in solidarity with the power grid. That is very
1: good of you. Yeah. Thank um, you. We appreciate that. <laughs> well, actually this kind of relates to our guest this week, Joni Murphy, who is the author of a new novel called Talking Animals, which partly deals with climate change.
0: Yeah, exactly. You say that in a chipper voice. Yeah, it does. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> it's a very fun book for one that you know touches on serious and, and grave topics um, because it's told from the perspective of animals.
1: It is, and the main character is an alpaca. The secondary character is a llama, so it's two delightful animals um, Mm. in terms of the realm of animals, I think. But yeah, they are dealing with a lot of pretty serious issues like civil rights, climate change. I don't know what else we got in there, Kate. Gentrification. Gentrification, political corruption the wide range of topics that we cover with Joni.
0: Yeah, and I thought this was a great conversation. And I I have to say, I, I think Joni has a beautiful voice. I do too, yeah. So should we get to it? Yes.
1: We have Joni Murphy joining us today. Joni is a writer whose debut novel, Double Teenage, was published in 2016. Her new novel, Talking Animals, takes place in a city much like New York, except it's populated exclusively by animals who live and behave a lot like humans. They have terrible jobs, polluted oceans, and a corrupt political and social and economic system. The book follows Alfonso, an alpaca trying to finish his dissertation, very relatable, and his friend Mitchell a llama. Both of them work in City Hall and both become involved in a revolutionary movement, which aims to uncover the corruption in government and stand up for the creatures of the sea who have long been oppressed by the land animals. Joni Murphy is originally from New Mexico, and she now lives in New York City. Thank you so much, Joni, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much.
0: I just was really amazed by this novel because it takes issues I think we're all very familiar with and makes them new and strange and relatable, but then you're never sure how they're going to play out in this animal world. So I was very spellbound in reading it, even though a lot of the themes are just, you know, things we deal with every day in our own lives. I'm wondering how you decided to make this about animals. If you wanted to write about New York City and other issues, and you thought, did the animals come second or did they come first?
3: I think I have long, even when I was a little kid, like many little kids, you know, the animal world is deeply related to my sense of literature and storytelling. So I think animals were kind of in the back of my head for a long time. But I was actually talking to my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, and he said something very like in passing, a New York thing where he's like, so and so lives in Mitchellama housing. Which if you are from New York, it's a kind of middle income housing program that started it after World War II. And I was just like, what are you talking about? That sounds... And we just started kind of making these jokes about if you open the door of this one office in City Hall, there would just be like a llama named Mitchell sitting there. And then from there, we sort of... It just started this joke. And then we were like, okay, who else would be in this miniature New York with only animals? So I think it just kind of came from the fact that that happens to be named Mitchellama Housing. But I think, you know, my tendency, we were very obsessed, or I am still obsessed with like watching dogs and sort of talking about dogs and their owners, less their owner and more their dog. So it became this kind of like coping mechanism slash obsession. And it also was sort of happening before the election and then after the inauguration. So it really was this like, way to cope with New York that once I started, I kind of couldn't stop. And it felt like a portal had opened into Mm. the animal world.
1: Would you give us like a sense of the kind of animal kingdom (laughs) that Mitchell and Alfonso live in, in New York? I don't think this is really like overtly
3: stated in the novel, but I kind of think New York, if it were going to be all animals, would have a lot of vegetarians or herbivores or, you know, not like heavy meat-eater animals, because I just think they would live in like more rural states where they could kill other animals. So I think it's like this, this New York, in my mind, was populated by a lot of like dogs and cats and raccoons and deer and animals that kind of are comfortable being together, which is why I think the alpaca and llama make sense, because they're sort of naturally herd animals. So this is like a New York, I kind of thought of it mixture of a 70s New York and a Bloomberg New York. So there's, I don't think they have computers and that sort of helped me cut out or simplify something, but they're kind of living in this crumbly city and things are going wrong. And there's kind of like, it's sort of a messy... I also like to imagine like how animals would actually build the city. So I think this one would be a bit more... There would be more plants or things made out of wood. And yet, at the same time, you know, the super city it is now. And another thing that kind of struck me that I think led to the sea creature conversation is... Bloomberg, when he was in office, like paid to have these huge aquariums installed in City Hall, and they were very expensive to maintain, and they were the first thing you saw in a certain area. So that always kind of struck me as like a bizarre choice for a mayor. So they live in a New York. It's kind of like New York, but it's a more 70s New York mixed with a early 2000s New York.
0: And yet they live in a New York similar to the present day one where sea rising basically threatens to dismantle the whole city. And here in your novel, it's called sea aggression and it's, you know, there's lots of rumors spreading about it. And I wondered if you could talk about that aspect of the book, placing that as kind of the main conflict of your story.
3: Yeah. I mean, in the question of like, if animals live in a society, who do the carnivores eat? And, I felt like the whole society had built up around a displacement of aggression and violence and pollution. And they would just sort of eat all the sea creatures and toss everything in the ocean. And I think there's a, you know, if the animals kind of built reality, they would look down on the sea creatures because things aren't built in the ocean. So it was a way to somebody had to be othered. And if it wasn't the land animals, I think they kind of just threw all of their anxieties and fears and everything they didn't want would just go into the ocean.
1: Well, that sort of brings us to one of the major conflicts in the book, which is the tension between the land animals and the sea animals. And I think one of the things that is tempting when you're reading a book that is populated by animals is to start to kind of place meaning onto different species or onto different categories. So to think about, well, like the pigs represent the police, the sea animals represent what I don't know. But I think your book resists that a little bit. It doesn't fall that easily into that kind of reading or categorization. So maybe first the question would be, how did you start conceiving of the sea other than like an oppositional force?
3: When I started committing to this project, I started thinking a lot about the way animals are often used and the one-to-one relationship, like all mice are this identity. But I, was, I really wanted to also kind of not just use animals as symbols, but think about how animals live in the world. And so I started thinking like, okay, there would be all the different animals that come from Peru or the Northeast or England, and there wouldn't be one group from one place. And I also don't think in my telling of the animal world, all the rich animals are X or the police, like you said, like I wanted it to be way more nuanced because I think that's both more like human beings and probably more like animals. There can be, you know, these aggressive ones or the ones that did really well. And so I did want to resist that because it seemed too disrespectful to animals. And I was thinking about Animal Farm and kind of like, I think in Animal Farm, there's a little bit of a wasted opportunity in that the animals are not very animal-like. And I thought that I wanted to simultaneously really treat the animals seriously and then kind of show them as a complex society.
0: Something in the book that obviously is relatable and true of us is that because the sea animals don't have representation and they don't communicate with the land animals. They're not represented in government. They have no rights. And I wonder if, you know, I don't know your background or how interested you are in animal rights or thinking about that kind of puzzle of how do you advocate for an entire kingdom that you can't communicate with. I wonder if in writing the book, you thought any more about that and the kind of crisis that that faces us, which is that to kind of think about the rights of animals is ethical, but then it's also projection. And it kind of slows down ideas of human progress, having to be careful about displacing animal population and all those kind of things. And if that became something that changed for you over the course of writing the book, or if it's something you've always thought about a lot.
3: Well, I was thinking a lot about in the movement towards modern thought and the enlightenment they really had to convince people that animals were not participants or beings i feel like there's so much evidence that animals were actually like more involved in society and they would be put on trial in europe and so then there was that movement to think of animals as mechanisms or they don't have a soul or we don't know if they are can feel pain or something And I always thought that was a very crazy way of thinking about animals and that the sort of resistance to projecting is also a resistance to empathy. Because I think if you do spend time around animals, I think most of us know it's like, yeah, it's not as mysterious always as we think, especially, you know, I'm sure there is that difference, but it's like mammals have emotional lives. And we have to actually work to resist that rather than see it, because I think we do see it. So I wanted to kind of, I felt like it was almost a trap to be like, well, I can't project onto animals because I don't know what they feel. But that is true for human beings. And sometimes it just gets used as an excuse to mistreat animals. So there was ways that it's like, I think animal studies, there's very many things. And I liked the study of animals in culture and participants and not fully making them into a human, but also imagining that they have, you know, histories that they're in touch with.
0: Right. You know, that's why there's also kind of a real skewering of academia in the book, but it's also a way I think for you to paint that picture of like the possible depth of animal history because Alonzo is writing his dissertation on alpacas and their history and the different ways they're treated in folklore and so you definitely illustrate that in the book.
3: Yeah, I have thought about this that like the I love the university has been so fundamental to my life experience and yet it kind of like goes both ways where it convinces people you can't possibly you know, think about animals like this or it can really like send you into a labyrinth and give you the tools to think about other beings and histories, but then also kind of remove you from it or make you distrust yourself. So, you know, I think that there was something about Alfonso wanting to escape into the university and thinking that it would be the place he could hide out. And I think it's not available so much anymore because it's kind of succumbed to contemporary capitalism in so many ways.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Joni Murphy, author of Talking Animals. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation.
1: We have and Mezi on the line with us today. Akwaeke's latest book is called The Death of Vivek Oji, and they are joining us to give us a book
2: recommendation today. Akwaeke, what book are you going to recommend? Today I am recommending a poetry collection called Sacrament of Bodies by Romeo It's who's a queer Nigerian poet. It's published Hmm. by Nebraska Press, and it's described as Romeo fearlessly interrogating how a queer man in Nigeria can heal in a society where everything is designed to prevent such restoration. Oh, wow. How did you come to this book? I... Found out about Romeo through, I think, social media, like just uh, just being queer Nigerian writers who are kind of in each other's orbits. Mm-hmm. And I had seen his poems around. He won the Brunel Prize for poetry, for African poetry, I think a couple of years back. And then I got this collection because I really wanted to read like a a body of work of his. His poems are gorgeous. And I loved it because... It has so much in conversation with my work, like we're thinking about queerness, we're thinking about religion, we're thinking about, you know, the Christ, and mm. it's, it's all mixed up together. And so, yeah, I, I've been a fan of his poetry for ages. And I don't actually read a lot of poetry, but his stuff just you know, chef's kiss. Amazing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, what I was actually going to ask you is, I, anytime anybody recommends a poetry collection, I ask about their poetry reading practices. What are your wrote poetry reading practices? Do you just read, do you just sit down and read all all together? Do you space them out? Do you go back and reread?
2: I read random poems. So okay. a lot of my poems, a lot of the poems that I read, are from friends sending them to me, or like someone shared it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And and I really enjoy it that way. I've read a couple of collections, um, like Warsan Shear's collection,
1: uh, mm-hmm.
2: Safiya Heal. Like, but I've also found it sometimes really difficult to read collections because I agree it can be for me overwhelming with emotion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like I was reading this collection Thag's Leap" um, by Sharon olds, and mm-hmm. it's a poetry collection about divorce. And I got divorced in my early 20s and reading it was so overwhelming and oh triggering, God. actually. And I was just like, I got like a quarter of the way through and I was like, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm good. Because I was just like, I can't, keep go- I can't keep feeling all these feelings about like the same topic. It's too much. So I tend to take poetry in, in like microdoses.
1: That seems like a very nice way to microdose. And probably safer <laughs> than other practices. Aqueke, will you tell us the name of the book again and the author?
2: Sacraments of Bodies by Romeo Obiogun. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Aqueke Emezi,
1: and their new book is called The Death of Vivek Og. You are listening to the LARB Radio
0: Hour. We now return to our conversation with Joni Murphy, author of Talking Animals.
1: I think your your book does such a good job of satirizing academia while sort of lovingly also prodding at it. You said, you know, you have a long sort of history with, with universities, but what, what's your experience in academia?
3: I moved from like a small town in New Mexico and I started university in Las Cruces and then I went to university in Montreal and then I did a, a master's degree in cultural studies, and then I did a, you know, an MFA, and now I actually work at a university in New York as a sort of technical person, toiling away in the <laughs> the bowels of a university. So I work with academics, professors, kind of like all day in my day job. I'm very aware of the insane. Tensions that are at work in the university now, and the people who are in control are really thinking about money. And I think a lot of my favorite academics are not maybe thinking about university as a purely economic scheme.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble, <laughs> but but it's like you know, universities and. Sc- some of my favorite teachers and they gave me the sort of tools to think with, but then it also gave me this sense of, you know, I must not be good enough. I'm not in, I haven't, you know, the in and out of a university, I think can really mess with people's minds, even as it gives yeah. them all this kind of rich material to work with.
0: I want to ask about, you know, seeing things systemically and, um, looking at, you know, using fiction as a way to look at, structures of society and see if there's any correlation for you in your first book. It's about two young girls. And, and this one now, you know, from not exactly the perspective of animals, but about animals, do you see any, are those useful tools, the kind of more, I don't want to say naive uh, point of view, but, you know, in in trying to tell a, a much larger story, how do you use perspective to get at it? Has that been important for you as you create the stories of your novels? Like who, who's the one telling the story?
3: When I was doing a a master's degree, I was really focused on Walter Benjamin. And there was something, I think just in the surrounding kind of the stuff around him—it was very about systems and objects, and how kind of things other than humans carry and communicate time and history and politics. And I think that mixed with um, you know early experiences of being told either overtly or subtly that. You know, being a girl and writing like a girl is somehow suspect or embarrassing. Um, and, you know, an interest in fairy tales, which I think is just an, a kind of background influence if you write about animals. There was all these communications that's like, don't do that. You know, don't, you're not writing in a muscular, lean, kind of coded masculine way. And I used to, you know, I struggled with that. And then I was like, wow, I'm going to just do it to the extreme in certain ways. Because there's something about, you know, embarrassment that I felt both in writing about girls, teenage girls, and really treating it seriously. And then treating animals as kind of seriously as I could just opened up things that felt I got more joy from it than trying to reproduce a kind of realism, you know, like dominant literature. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you treat actually machines. There's a lot of attention to what's going on with the machines in this book as well.
3: Yeah, I I had a part that my editor probably wisely told me to leave away, you know, take out, but it was like his the office machines kind of all had their own sentience and they were all devoted to astrology. And so the, all the, all the like, machines were having their own conversation about the stars and they were like, the stars are machines in the sky. Um, and he's like, well, we can only believe one. If the animals are all talking and then the machines are all talking, then maybe it's too much, which is wise. But, you know, I did like to think about the machines and their lives as well. What was the connection between machines and the stars? I think that it was like imagine that the machines were sitting in their offices and the animals would leave for the day and they would look out the window and sort of see you know twinkling lights mm-hmm. and and they, they would move according to you know over years they would you know the they would see the machines kind of move and ha- follow kind of geometric patterns and so they had sort of told themselves a story like they had created their own astrology kind Uh of
1: wow that sounds really nice (laughs) (laughs) I was
3: I like I almost I I might try to write it as like a a side piece because I I had the sort of idea of and I also like the idea of like material changing form so it's like the machine kind of has a memory of the stuff that it was before it was a machine
1: Mm.
3: yeah which I think the animals also connects because I think there's a lot of I tried to pay a lot of attention towards, you know, all these animals like a, an alpaca, its its use and its labor is also its body, like it's, its wool. So I think the animal would have this intense sense of its own body as work somehow.
0: I'm curious to you if, if everyone really believed in, you know, the sentience of animals and machines and trees what do you think that means? Like, what what would that world look like?
3: Well, I mean, I I think, you know, in a very, in a naive way, years ago, I sort of, it's like, I was having a conversation and I was like, okay, somebody, imagine I don't know anything and explain like what the plan is with global capitalism and financial like growth. And it seemed built on this, you know, eternal, it's always more and and it didn't fit with the idea of the material world and a sort of finite nature of the world itself. And I think if you've ever seen that film, *Gomorra*, the Italian film, that's kind of about many layers. *Gomorra* is about many layers of Italian society and you know organized crime and there's a scene where they're burying waste like poisonous waste kind of and i i really feel like coming from new mexico the sort of the nature of how we treat material and kind of like poisoning ourselves and thinking like oh we can we can you know, have this endless growth and also just kind of dispose of what we don't want, but it always kind of returns and affects people's health. And so it's not that I had some vision of like, you know, we all become vegan and I have a very strict version of how we all interact. It's more like I wanted to get into the interconnection, you know, it's, it's, probably kind of hippie and new age, but it also is very intensely real. Like we all live with each other and that, you know, so all this plastic that's gone in the ocean or oil spills, it it doesn't really go away. And so, I think that there's so many different ways as a c- collective, you know, of people. we no, we know this, and we're trying to talk to each other about it. Um, and sometimes it kind of gets dismissed as, "Yeah, yeah," but it's so real.
0: One of, the- I mean, we're all dealing with that now. Sorry, neither. no, no. Well, I mean, that's
3: that's true. <laughs> we are. <laughs> and I and I thought that. I mean, there was something, you know, the election and the way I think the last ten years really have felt. Well, twenty years. It's a, where do you where do you draw the line? I got to a point where I was like, I can't feel so angry and hopeless. Um, it's too much for me to feel this level of intensity, and so I felt like if I kind of turned it into a a story about animals, I could look at things in a lighter way and a more emotional way. And it really just helped me deal with these ideas and not become maybe just livid with rage and despair.
1: And there are moments, even though I think the book deals with really serious, kind of very big issues, there are moments of real, like, comedy and sort of punning and little animal jokes here and there. So it it did seem to like provide for an opportunity to joke around uh, maybe more than you'd have otherwise. Yeah, I, d- I think
3: that if it had been about, you know, 30 something year old human beings in New York, people would, the reader would maybe be more resistant to it. And there, there's this kind of landscape of joke that wouldn't have been available. Yeah. So I there was like a sweetness that I I needed to cope. And I think hopefully other people could kind of read it and think but have a little space because there's also, you know, yeah, silly animal jokes.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it's good to give a space for wonder, you know, I think as well. That seems really important in, in literature and art that you don't want to just uh regurgitate the same story about, yeah, 30 something's struggling with high housing costs and uh, getting their dissertation done. But suddenly when animals are doing it, it's a new story.
3: Yeah. And I, I thought, and I think there's the the link of, you know, it's like, we talk about like loss of animal habitat and then it, it was a, I wanted there to be a way to be to feel empathy towards human beings, one another, Um, it's like people are losing habitat, you know, and if we think of it that way, it sounds kind of silly, but also really true. That's what we're all kind of dealing with, you know, and somehow to just recast or kind of make the mirror gave me some space.
1: So there's a revolutionary group that both Mitchell and Alfonso become involved in and One of the things that, you know, this made me think about and that I think the book grapples with is, well, how much hope do you feel in revolution? How much stake do you put in it? How much is possible? I wanted to ask you about that. You know, what are, what are your feelings about that? How do you approach that? Do you approach that differently now that you've written this book? I think that I was
3: trying to get to all the, it's like, the sea is not, in my mind, just an organized group. It's sort of like the unknown, and um, and a huge, you know, a huge part of the the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but this space of kind of like you have to imagine something that you can't imagine. For revolution to take place. You have to say we could live in a different way with one another and more and more that feels necessary. But I think it gets shut off. It's like, oh, are we going to become like X, like, you know, are we going to become like this country, you know, and there's a way to shut it off rather than trying to find intuitively a new way of being together and, I didn't want to like pin the ocean down to be like it's a revolutionary group that will organize people in or you know organize animals into cells or you know communes and really leave it to be the space of like do you have to have hope and you have to have a sort of imaginary an imagination to search for something new and then in the searching you move in a better direction you don't like locate revolution or the the alternative and then move into it and feel totally comfortable you actually just try to grapple with the unknown and so often it seems like we're we're shown like a a dystopian Future and everyone will be like this, and there will be this kind of violence. And I just wanted to kind of prime the imagination to not know together. I think that we already, like, presently are experiencing revolutionary impulses. They're not going to be pinned down, and maybe they're hard to recognize, but they feel mm, right or better. Than what we've been living through.
2: Well, that
1: might be a nice place to end, actually. Thank you so much, Joni, for talking to us about your book.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely.
1: Yeah. Thank you. We've been speaking to Joni Murphy. Her new book is called Talking Animals. Thank you, Joni. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. We've been speaking with Joni Murphy, author of Talking Animals. Thanks for listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of The LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlatten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lux.